It, it is indeed a privilege to be able to meet together, and, and we don't know how long we're going to get to do that. But we are able to this morning and hopefully next week. And uh, I think what it reminds me is we ought not to ever take it for granted. So last week we, can, we concluded our study on Jonah, and indeed my Bible does crack open to that. And next week we begin an Advent series, Lord willing. Um, but this morning we want to have a, a morning focusing on prayer, Prayer Sunday. And I've entitled my message this morning, Prayer 101. Let's join in prayer before we begin. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, would you be pleased to speak to us through it? Open our ears to hear and open our hearts to respond through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, few would argue that one of the essential activities of the Christian faith is prayer. It's through prayer that we bring our requests and petitions to God. It's through prayer that we express our worship and gratitude to God. And yet I think if we're honest, many of us will admit we struggle with prayer. Certainly it's true of new Christians who think like, how do, how do I pray? What should I say when I, when I pray? But I think it can be true of those of us who have been Christians for quite a number of years. Our prayer life can become sometimes a little flat and we need to refocus and we need to refresh and think again what prayer really is all about. What should we pray for? What is important? Are some things unimportant? Are there some things we don't need to pray for? What should we say in our prayers? Well, the gospel writer Luke makes it really clear that this is not a new question. And if you turn over to Luke chapter 11, is, is one of the places where we come across the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels. And in the Gospels, we find the Lord's Prayer twice in Matthew chapter 6, which we'll look at in more detail, and in Luke chapter 11. And they're in different contexts. So that would tell me that the Lord said this prayer or taught this prayer on numerous occasions. But in Luke chapter 11, the context is the disciples are curious to know how to pray. Luke 11, beginning at verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, and he teaches them what is the abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. So this concern that we might have of, can we pray more effectively, how do we pray, it's not a new concern because the first disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, it's interesting, when you read through the Gospels, and you can check this out, and if you get shut down in the next month, this will give you something to do. Uh, check through the Gospels. I think this is specifically the only time anywhere in the Gospels where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything. Now, now, Jesus was a great preacher, and I would like to think, if I'd have been with one of Jesus' disciples, you know, that I might have done this. There's no record of this. There's never a record where they say, hey, Jesus, that was really an awesome sermon. Could you, could you give us some of the techniques, you know, like Tim Keller's book? Show me how I can preach. But there's no record of that. Now, we know Jesus was a master storyteller, and his parables are still around, and we, we still are moved by them. But there's never a record of the disciples saying, wow, that was a really cool story. Could you teach us how to tell meaningful stories like that? But they did say, teach us to pray. It says here they saw Jesus pray. They heard him pray. And he prayed often and he prayed powerfully. And when he knelt down to pray to the Heavenly Father, something happened. 
And so the disciples said, we want to know how to do that. How can we pray like that? And so one of the disciples doesn't say who it was. Maybe it was Peter. He's kind of bold. And he came up and he said, Lord, could you teach us how to pray? We'd like to know how to pray like that. And so in response to that question, Jesus teaches them this prayer. What should they say in their prayers? What's important? How should they pray? And in the Lord's Prayer, we have an answer to that question. So I've called this Prayer 101. Turn over to Matthew 6, the passage we read, and we have the prayer in a little more detail. It's within the context here of the, the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what Jesus said in response to their question. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or the marginal reader says, from the evil one. And then again in your margin, there's this addition from some later manuscripts that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples has been on the lips of Christians for almost 2,000 years. And by the beginning of the second century, when we look at um, some of the, uh, the, the writings from the early church, the Didache, it records that in their order of worship, Christians were actually praying the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. The original words which Jesus taught were probably in Aramaic, which was the language of the people in the Middle East. And by the time the second century came around, Christians would be praying it in Greek. And then through the Middle Ages, the Lord's Prayer is prayed in the church in Latin. It was called the Pater Noster. Pater means father. Noster is our, so it was our father, the first two words. Then with the Reformation, the Lord's Prayer is translated into many different languages, including English. And in 1549, Bishop Cramner includes this in the Book of Common Prayer, which we still pray today. And I think we have on the screen there, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. A prayer given by Christ to his disciples for every age, for every people, for every nation, in every language. In the early church, this prayer was memorized so it could be readily said by all. Because most people uh, didn't have books, they couldn't read, so they memorized it. And up until very recently, pretty well all Christians would know this prayer by memory. In fact, here we age ourselves. Most of us who are 50 and over, we said this prayer in elementary school every morning. In fact, as a child at University Hill Elementary School in Vancouver, uh, my day began with a reading of scripture. Um, the national, this was the public school, by the way, the, uh, the reading of scripture, the national anthem, and the Lord's Prayer. Now, those days, and does anybody remember that? Do you, did you guys do that? Yeah, you did it even, even young guys like you. Okay. <laughs> and these days in Canada, for better or for worse, we now live in what's called a post-Christian society, and that's no longer the case. So if the Lord's Prayer is to be passed on to the next generation, it's not going to occur through the public school. It will occur through the home and through the church. But not only is the Lord's Prayer a prayer to be memorized, it's, it's not only a, a memorized prayer, it's a template for prayer. I want you to understand that. It's like, you know, when you get one of those boilerplates and then you fill in the bits? 
Well, that's also what the Lord's Prayer is. It's just to give us direction for our prayer. The Lord's Prayer then as a template can be personalized to many cultures and many different individual needs and situations. So the Lord's Prayer is not only a script, it's also an outline for what can be included in believing prayer. When you want to know, how should I pray? The Lord says, here's the outline, fill it in, figure out how it looks in your life. So the Lord's Prayer is both a script and an outline. So Jesus responds to that struggling disciples question, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives them this prayer. Let's look at it in a little detail. There's the preamble there beginning at verse 5, the context in which Jesus gave the prayer. And he says to them, Matthew 6, verse 5, When you pray, you must but not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and the street corners that they can be seen. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Here's the point I want to make here. And I don't think this is a big issue in our culture today. It might have been in another time. But prayer is not a performance. Prayer is not, you know, that, you know, Darren prays better than Harold does, right? It's not anything to do with that. It's not a public display of piety. And it's not an opportunity to impress or score points. Prayer is not a performance. Look at uh, Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that through their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask. Here's the second thing. Prayer is not a verbal marathon. And I, I, I remember as kids in church, I don't know if you guys ever did this, um, growing up in, in the conservative brethren, we had open services, and there used to be one dear brother, and he would pray, and we would time it. Did you guys ever do things like that? We'd time it. And Brother Isaac, he would pray like for 15 minutes. Anyhow, prayer is not a verbal marathon, as if our many words will force God's hand. And prayer is not about secret formulas of finding the right sequence of words to impress him. Prayer is not a verbal marathon. So it's, prayer is neither about verbiage or showmanship. Jesus says, here's what prayer is about. Here is how you should pray. And I want to look at four key principles, things you can easily remember from the prayer that Jesus says is prayer 101. And you know, I think, I don't know where we're going with all this COVID thing, but I think we're going worse, not better for a while. And I think this might be a firm prayer anchor as we navigate through this next piece of the pandemic. And I trust it can encourage your prayer life and that you can take some of the stuff from this morning, whatever suits you, whatever helps you, and use it in the days ahead. Now, the Lord's Prayer is just a few words, but they are packed full of meaning. And, uh, you know, you think, how can he preach on like, you know, four or five verses? But actually, you could preach on this for a few weeks, but I won't do that. I won't do that to you. But there's a lot of stuff in here. But the first principle, I believe, is found in Matthew 6, verse 9. Very simple. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Here's the first principle. Prayer is communion with the heavenly Father. The Lord's Prayer is a family prayer. Our Father. It actually is not intended for unbelieving society. It's designed for disciples, for Christians, for those who follow Jesus. It's good that school children pray the Lord's Prayer. It's good for them to memorize it. But the Lord's Prayer is not primarily a schoolboy's prayer. It might actually better be called the disciples' prayer. Prayer is the language of the divine relationship. It's, it's for those who are part of the family of God, who have trusted Jesus as their Savior, who therefore know God as their Heavenly Father. So it's only disciples who can honestly say, Our Father. Now, 
When we say our Father in heaven, there's three truths that bubble to the surface. Here's the first. There's the truth that God is personal. He's not just some impersonal, abstract, cosmic force, as some philosopher has said, that the first cause, the ground of our being. No, no. He's our Father in heaven. And that's a mystery, and that's awesome, that the God of eternity reveals himself to us as a Father. God is personal. Now, secondly, the words, our Father, remind me of the reality of God's love. Yesterday, I spent some time with a dad that's struggling with his parenting, and he's telling me some of the issues, and I was sharing some of the stuff I'd gone through. And you realize it's just in a father's heart to love their kids, no matter how bad they are, no matter what they do. You just can't unlove a father's heart. So the words, Father, remind me of the reality of God's love, that God is loving. And thirdly, it tells us he's our Father in heaven. He's not just compassionate, but he's the God of all power who's above and beyond all things. He is the creator and the ruler, and he combines his fatherly love with his eternal power. He's got both at the same time. John Stott says this, When Jesus taught us to say our Father in heaven, he was not concerned primarily with protocol and etiquette, saying our prayers the right way. No, he was concerned with truth that we would realize that we pray to a God who is both personal, loving, and powerful. So there's the first principle. Prayer is communion with our Heavenly Father. Now continue there, verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here, I think, is, is a really key part of the prayer. Prayer is conforming to God's priorities. Do you have them there? There's your name, your kingdom, your will. That's God's priorities. There are actually six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three concern God's priorities. The second three present our personal needs. Note the personal pronoun. It's not coincidental. Follow it. First, it's your name, your kingdom, your will. Then it is give us, forgive us, deliver us. Got it? So the point is our needs are important, but they're not the first focus of this prayer. The first focus of the Lord's prayer is that our will, my will, should conform to God's will that God's priorities become our priorities. Martin Luther said this, By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we're instructing Him. Now, it's tragically true that sometimes I just see prayer as a way of getting what I want. Many times the only time I pray is when I find myself in a crisis. But prayer is not primarily about demanding what I want. Prayer is primarily about discovering what God wants. Prayer is conforming to God's priority. Think of the example of Jesus. Remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane? Before he is going to the cross and he's struggling, he's like sweating blood. And he's saying, if it's possible, take this whole thing from me. He thinks of the mission, he thinks of the suffering, he thinks of the cross. And then through the darkness, we hear this voice that says, but not my will but yours be done. David Augsburger puts it this way, prayer is not to impress God or inform God. Prayer instead is opening up one's life to God. It is inviting him to act in our lives. Prayer moves the hand of God by giving him the freedom to do in our lives what he has been wanting to do. 
Prayer is conforming to God's priorities. Now let's look in a little detail at those three priorities. Here's the first one. Jesus said, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name. And you say, hallowed, like what does that mean, hallowed? It's a very obscure word, but it's a powerful word. It means to be honored, to be respected, to be set apart, to be held in high regard, to be reverenced, to be regarded as holy. In the Bible, as I think you know, a name was representative of the person that possessed that name. So our prayer is, when we say, hallowed be your name, is that people would honor God and respect his name. And this is a request that certainly needs to be made today. We live in a society filled with irreverence and profanity. You know, listen to the hit songs on the radio, read the news feed on the internet, watch the latest movie, sometime in the future attend a stage play, but God's name is not respected. His name is dishonored many times. You know, you walk down the aisle, and I, I, I think I better get my Christmas shopping done real soon, but you walk down the aisle of Indigo, and these are the book titles that are meant to shock and offend. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. So if there ever was a time to pray this petition, it's now in our society, in our Canada, that his name would be honored, hallowed be thy name. Now notice the second petition, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is that sphere where his rule is supreme, where his reign and supremacy is acknowledged. When we pray for the kingdom to come, we look forward to a future day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But when we pray your kingdom come, we also pray that his rule today would increase in the hearts of women and the hearts of men throughout the world. When we say your kingdom come, we mean that the kingdom would grow, it would expand. This is a prayer of mission. This is a prayer of evangelism. And then there's a third petition, your will be done. Sometimes we speak of God's will in dreary and fatalistic ways. Oh, I suppose it must have been God's will. But that's not what's meant here. This is a joyous desire that God's will be done on the earth. His justice, his mercy, his compassion, his love that it would flood the earth just as it floods heaven. Um, the prophet Amos had this visionary statement that justice would roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. That the peoples of the earth would discover God's word and God's will and embrace it. Now, I could head off on a whole tangent here, but I won't. But I'll just leave this little seed because it's a little seed that is permeating parts of the church today. The primary call for the Christian is not to follow God's love, although that's very important. The primary call of the Christian is to follow God's will. Now, God's will includes God's love, but I dropped that little seed that I could go off at the big, big way. The primary call of the Christian is to follow God's will. That is a biggie. Because so often what I call love is really my feeling. But God's will is his desire that has been revealed to us. And when you pray these three petitions, they become even more meaningful as we make them our own. This day, may I honor your name in all I say and in all I do. May I celebrate your reign in my life and make your kingdom mission my mission. May your will be done in my life, in my home, in my office, on the sports field, on the hockey rink, in the classroom. These are the priorities of the Christian. 
God's name, his kingdom, and his will. John Stott, in his book, Christian Counterculture, uh, which is well worth a read, says this, to pray these words with sincerity has revolutionary implications. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of our culture. When this happens, we become concerned with our little name, liking to see it embossed on our letterhead or hitting the headlines, the headlines in the press, defending it when it's attacked. It's all about our own little empire, bossing, influencing, manipulating people to boost our ego, and about our own silly little will, always wanting our own way. But in the Christian counterculture, our top priority, our top concern is not our name, but it's his name, that his kingdom will be done, that God's will will be done. Not our kingdom, but God's kingdom. Principle number two, prayer is conforming to God's priorities. Now come with me to principle number three. It's found in verse 11 to 13, the meat of the requests here. Give us today our daily bread, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Principle three, prayer is communicating our deepest needs to God. Daily bread, forgiveness, deliverance from evil. Someone has put it this way. It's our physical needs, bread. It's our spiritual needs, forgiveness. It's our moral needs, overcoming temptation. Three petitions for the most fundamental of necessities. First of all, daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. In Bible times, people lived from day to day, from hand to mouth. They needed bread. They didn't have refrigerators, and they didn't have big savings accounts. They needed every day enough bread for that day. There was no crop insurance. There was no CERBs. There was no rent subsidies. There was no EI. Their very existence depended on their ability to receive daily bread. Daily bread is the staple food of the people. Daily bread is the staff of life. This is a prayer for the most basic of necessities. They are praying for food for today. Now, though today we may not literally pray for bread, we too are invited to pray for the necessities of life, for employment in these really uncertain COVID times, for our tuition fees, for mortgage payments, for rent, for food, for clothes for our deepest, most essential material needs. Go ahead, pray for them. Jesus says we should pray for them. And he says your father knows about them even before you ask. I think in our society right now, at this point in history, some of our biggest needs are emotional needs. This whole thing has been incredibly stressful for people. I, as dealing with the public and dealing with health issues every day, those of us who struggle with any sort of anxiety and worry, this is just like gas on the fire, isn't it? I think we can pray for strength to stay positive as we all deal with this COVID fatigue. But I want you to notice the request carefully. It's a prayer for daily bread. It's not a prayer for daily cake. And as we go to prayer, we need to say sometimes, is this a necessity or is this a luxury? Is it a need or a want? Daily bread is definitely on the menu. But if you're ordering the Rolex watch or the Lamborghini sports car, I want to tell you something. You're on your own. <laughs> you're on your own. Notice it says it's not just my daily bread. It's our daily bread. What we pray for ourselves, we pray for our brothers and sisters in our community and beyond. We pray for the poor and the hungry. 
Even today, as we pray for daily bread, our hearts are moved by the needs in the world, and we're thankful for those through world vision and compassion who work to meet those needs. We are praying that we would be moved to action. Prayer is communicating our deepest needs to God. Now let's consider the next request, a request not for physical essentials, but for spiritual essentials. Jesus says, pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, verse 12. In the prayer book version, it says, forgive us our trespasses. In Luke's gospel, the word debts is rendered, forgive us our sins, debts, trespasses, sins. It's all different words for the exact same thing. It just means I've messed up again, right? And because I mess up on a regular basis, I need forgiveness. And without forgiveness, my heart becomes heavy. Without forgiveness, guilt pulls me down. And without forgiveness, my relationships, even my deepest, no, especially my deepest relationships, become strained and bitter. I don't usually watch royal stuff, right? I usually ignore it. You know, you see all the stuff when you're checking out and there's some story about the royals. But when Kate and William were married a few years ago, I watched the wedding. It was kind of nice. And I especially listened to the, the sermon. It was uh, Reverend Richard Charters, who's an English minister, who gave the message. And as I was listening, he said this in his sermon. He said, we are all incomplete. We all need a love which is secure rather than oppressive. We need mutual forgiveness to thrive. Thank God the essence of Christianity is forgiveness. Christ has forgiven us, so we forgive others. We have wronged God and wronged our fellow man, yet when we repent, we're forgiven. And so the logic, Jesus says, is when we are wronged, when the offender is genuinely sorry and seeks forgiveness, we extend mercy. But someone might say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Doesn't this sound like God's forgiveness is conditional on our forgiving? But look at it from another angle. It's not that God's forgiveness is conditional in our forgiving. It's just completely logical that those who are forgiven will forgive. Michael Green says this, If we are to open our hands to receive God's gracious pardon, we cannot keep our fist tightly clenched against those who have wronged us. I grew up as a child in uh, the little country of Northern Ireland. And uh, through the 1980s and 1990s, there was terrible bloodshed and terror in our country. And one of the worst events that happened was this time of the year, it was Remembrance Day, um, 1987, in a little town called Inniskillen, which isn't a whole lot different than Elmira. And the crowd had gathered at the Cenotaph, just like we gather up at the Cenotaph, well, we usually do, we didn't this year, but we have for a long time. And the crowd had gathered at the Cenotaph for the service and the, the, the band had just begun to play the music and suddenly there was a massive explosion. And it was, a, it was a terrorist IRA bomb that was hidden beside the Cenotaph, blew up. And buried in the rubble was a, a store owner called Gordon Wilson, who owned one of the shops down the main street. And his daughter Marie, who was a, a nurse, was with him, 21-year-old girl. And when the debris was all moved away and Gordon was injured, he suddenly realized that beside him was the lifeless body of his daughter, Marie. She was one of nine that was killed in that explosion and dozens more who were injured. And the loss of Marie obviously shattered that man, Gordon Wilson, and his family. And yet he saw that a desire for revenge would only bring more loss and more trouble in his community. So he actually did the exact opposite of what you might expect. He immediately set to work 
in working towards reconciliation in his community and trying to repair the damage that that whole event had caused emotionally. And I heard him interviewed a number of years ago on CBC, and I was incredibly moved by what he said. He, he begged that no one should see this as a place to take revenge. He said, that will not bring my daughter back. And he reached out in forgiveness to the murderers. And when the interviewer asked him, how could you have such an attitude? I was really struck by his response. Here's what he said. All my life, every Sunday in worship, he said, I have prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How could I not practice what so long I have professed to believe? Wow. There's one final petition here. Jesus says, and pray this, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. This is a double-edged request, isn't it? It's a prayer for guidance and moral strength. It has a positive and a negative side. It's a prayer for keeping and a prayer for freedom. And because the reason we need to pray for guidance, lead us into temptation, is because we so easily and so often go the wrong way. And the reason we ask for deliverance is because we so easily get caught in traps that we can't get out of. So we need God's wisdom to stay away from temptation and we need wisdom to make choices which keep us from falling over the edge. Or I, I would say we need wisdom that keeps us far away from the edge. That's even better. We need strength to deliver us when the temptation and the trial comes. And so we ask for strength and wisdom, the power of an all-powerful God. There's a wonderful little poem that sticks in my head. It says, Jesus, Lord, I need your power for temptations come and go. And without you, I am helpless with no strength to meet the foe. But if you will strengthen me, life will all triumphant be. Three petitions to meet our most critical needs, our physical needs, spiritual needs, and moral needs. So prayer is communion with the Heavenly Father. Prayer is conforming to God's priorities. Prayer is communicating our deepest need to God. It's a fabulous little prayer. You can say the whole thing in 30 seconds. Michael Green, uh, the late Michael Green, he passed away. He was a great preacher. He summarized it this way. Here's what he said. Here's the Lord's Prayer at its simplest yet most profound. God, our dear Heavenly Father, His name honored, His kingdom extended, His will done, our needs supplied, our sins forgiven, our temptations overcome, and all in 57 Greek words, no vain repetition here. <laughs> and then the prayer ends with this powerful doxology. Although you can see it's in the margin of your Bible because it's not included in, in the earliest manuscripts, but it's been prayed in the church since the earliest times. And it says, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here's the fourth principle. Prayer is committing ourselves to God's sovereign care. We pray to the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. His is the kingdom. We pray to the one who has the power to act. And here's how he acts. He either changes the circumstances or he changes us. His is the power. And whatever the outcome, whatever the answer, I commit myself to worship him alone for to him belongs all the glory and all the power forever and ever. Amen. I trust the words of that prayer would encourage you in the days ahead. I think we need encouragement. I trust they would help to mold your prayer, to make a template for how you can pray your deepest needs to the Lord.
Let's rise together and we'll pray the prayer as a script and uh, pray it from our hearts. I think you know it by heart. You can bow your head as we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.